Hello and welcome to our podcast, The Family of Things. Today I'm joined by author Denise Deegan and we're going to talk a little bit with Denise about her life and her writing. Denise, take us right back to the beginning. When did you start to write? Are you one of these people who was scribbling as a child, writing short stories? No, no. In fact, uh, the opposite. <laughs> in school, I would have been, you know, I wouldn't have stood out in English class as being particularly brilliant or anything like that. I think if I look back, I was always interested in story and movies and, and books, but I never felt I was a writer and I never felt the urge to write. I became a nurse first and had many other careers before I finally actually got to writing. And how that happened was I was doing a master's in public relations. And as part of the literature review, I had to research all the books that had been written on a particular subject. And I found that there was one missing that should be written. So I wrote that. And then something completely illogical happened. I just got an absolutely sudden bursting urge to write a novel, which made no sense at all. And at the time I was running my own PR business, I was pregnant with one child and I had another, a toddler. So it was a very busy time for me. I'm kind of fascinated by your journey into writing because we're surrounded by people who go to the creative writing masters, who go to endless workshops, who have this long, long struggle from the time they're 15 and then start producing novels, etc. Whereas yours seems much more casual, that, that you drift into it. And these books that, that you start to write and the way you find your voice in it, Turning Turtle, talk to me about the first things you were writing. Yeah, when I when I started writing, I was trying to run my business at the same time and I really wasn't getting to write what I wanted to write. And my husband and myself, we decided that we would make this big change in our lives and I would give up my business and I would spend time at home writing and look after my our very young family at the time. And when I did that, it was really interesting. The minute I did that, things changed. I started writing a very different story. I had been writing a story that was similar, I think, to a lot of stories that were there at the time. And when I gave up, I actually I actually went called to see Maeve Binchy, who was a family friend. And we sat down and we talked and she said, you just pick something different, pick something different, pick something you know. So in fact, what I did pick was I picked the whole situation where a woman gives up work and stays at home and the balance of power in the relationship and how that can really shift things within a relationship, a marriage. And um, the minute I wrote that, it just started to come alive and the voice of the character became very, very real. And I knew straight away was much more powerful than what I had been writing because that seemed to be kind of, even though it was passionately what I wanted to do, I think I was nearly forcing it a little bit. And this just came like a bullet and I wrote it really quickly in six months. And because I am not the person that you described, the person who's been trying so hard and going to all the courses, I was very naive. And so when I finished I didn't even know that you should edit your work which is ridiculous of course you have to edit now I'd edit a book you know twice before I'd even send it to my agent or you know a publisher Um, but back then completely naive sent it out and um, I did expect the rejections I did know that much and they came Um, but one very nice man took me aside and he said do you know about editing? And I said, no. So he actually gave me some really, really good advice. And he said, go on off now and 
work on that. And at the time I had started my next one and I did that for two reasons. One, I wanted to show people that I could write a different story because I think some of the rejections from the first one were it's too autobiographical because I was writing from experience. But the second reason was because I didn't want to get knocked down by the rejections. I wanted to be working ahead on something else. So I had to stop when, in fact, what I was doing in the beginning is I was editing the first one and continuing to write the second. But I got so into the first one again, I had to put the second one aside. And then when I finished the edits, I looked at the rejections that I had got and some of them were quite positive. And so I sent it to those people and I ended up with an offer from one publisher and two agents. So that's how it worked. And in a sense, the... the the ease, it seems, of, that you got an agent and offers really by, by second time round is incredible because for most people that, that can be very, very tough. I think it's interesting. I think the more you write, the better you get, for sure. It's like, you know, exercising a muscle. You just do get better. And it's interesting, having read some of your work and having listened to you talk before, is that your past has influenced that in terms of being a nurse or the, your journeys through different jobs, including one of your jobs was a checkout girl, I think. So you've, br- you've brought your life into your work. Yeah, it's funny because I don't deliberately do that. I can't seem to escape it. And I guess the, the medical thing comes up a lot. And it's just, well, with the writing, what I do anyway is I write what comes to me. And very often it is very much influenced by my life. And, and checkout girl, I was a checkout girl for a very short period of time over Christmas. And it was the most difficult job that I've ever done of all the jobs that I've done, including running my own business, which in fact was the easiest, I felt. But Checkout Girl was hardest. Why? (laughs) Well, first of all, I had this expectation that was very naive. I thought, oh, it's Christmas, everyone's going to be happy. And no, people were just in a hurry to get past you. You were a block to them getting home, getting ready for Christmas. Now, check out, girl, the story, the Christmas story that you've written. It's an unusual tale because you, 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 you marry the, this story of a young girl and, in a sense, maybe your own experience working at that tale with the annoyed customers with that of an old lady dying. How did that come about? It just came into my head. This is how a lot of the stories arrive. They just come. I don't force them. And I think it was a mix of I was living in Ratmines at the time as well and... Just life on the street in Rat Mines, it's almost like a mini New York. It's always busy. There's always things happening. And I did actually see an old woman get knocked down. And I think it all just merged into my head and just came out. Great. Well, we're going to hear you read a little bit of it now. I am so annoyed with myself. It was just a pudding. If I'd known what it would have led to, I'd have insisted on putting it back. Oh, there must be something I can do. If only I weren't invisible. I could just tell him. Explain that he's treating her like a criminal because of a simple act of kindness. Because of excellent customer service. Is there any way I can salvage this wretched situation? Am I not here to make amends to this poor girl for getting her into trouble? Apparently not, because instead of being allowed to intervene, I feel myself being pulled away. I am in a tiny but cosy council house. Fairy lights blink on and off on a fake Christmas tree in the corner. One big red stocking is hanging on the mantelpiece by a thumbtack. The name Jessie has been printed on it. Two people are dancing 
a little girl of three and a woman of 42. Who are they? What am I doing here? They are wriggling their bottoms, pointing their fingers in the air, singing and laughing to a song that must be called something like Keep on Rocking in the Free World, because that seems to be the chorus. I've never heard this song before. It's not exactly seasonal, but I have to admit, it's catchy. Denise, what's interesting about Checkout Girl is, in a sense, how much you pack into such a short journey. And it has this cinema feel to it, which is there in a lot of your work. And maybe that is one of the things that that will happen with it, that they will turn into movies. Do you often feel that when you write, that you see them? Yeah, it's funny. A lot of people say that to me about all my stories, whether they're the, uh, the ones I've written for adults or teenagers. I actually feel the stories come to me differently. They come to me in the form of dialogue. I hear the voices in my head. And that's what started me writing the teenage novels, the butterfly novels. I actually heard a conversation, very one sided, between a 16 year old girl and her father. And she was really, really angry, sarcastic. But there was a vulnerability to her and I just felt, wow, that's incredible. But I didn't force that if I had sat down to write a book about teenagers. I don't think I could have done it. So for me, even though they end up visual, they come to me very much through my hearing in my mind. I hear them. So, Denise, talk to us about the butterfly novels. How many of them have you published and what kind of audience has come to those books? So there are three butterfly novels and... The audience, when I was writing them, I didn't really think of an audience, but assumed it would be teenagers. But interestingly, I've discovered with young adult fiction, a lot of people reading young young adult fiction are in their 20s, 30s and even above. And there are people who like who are still young at heart and they love the emotion in teenage books because everything is felt so intensely as a teenager. Let's hear a little bit from the butterfly novels and you've picked a clip there, I think, from tell us which one it is and who's talking. Okay, so each of the butterfly novels is from a different point of view. So there are three friends. And so each book is like a completely different world. And that was that was why I did it so that you can see even though girls are best friends, going to the same school, having the same life. It's a completely different world from a different person's point of view. So this is Sarah. Sarah in the first book of the Butterfly novels is probably the least likable character. She's immature and a little bit selfish. But there are great things about her too. She's very enthusiastic and she's up for anything. So in this book, she starts off in a bad place and in the beginning it gets worse in order to get better. So what happens is she starts shoplifting In my room, I take out the very first thing I stole two weeks ago, the MAC eyeshadow. I roll it between my finger and thumb, watching it sparkle, remembering how I felt that day when mum freaked at me about something and I just slipped my hand into my pocket and felt the eyeshadow like a ray of sunshine. Now I dip my finger in. The grooves of my fingertips are highlighted in blue. A tiny circle at the centre is surrounded by increasingly bigger circles, like spreading ripples. There are lines cutting through the grooves, damaging them, and it makes sense to me that I wouldn't have a perfect fingerprint. I close the compact and fling it hard into the bin. I will be a new person, a better person. I will try so hard. 
Who influences you? I mean, you mentioned Maeve Binchy, who I knew well. I was lucky enough, since I'm ex-Irish Times journalist, to have got to know Maeve well, and we made a documentary with her. And she actually wrote back to me. I typed a letter to her when I was 15 saying, Dear Miss Binchy, I want to pursue a career in journalism. And she typed back on her lovely little manual typewriter in her uh, purple ink. She always used ink. And it was like, Dear Helen... So would you, when you chat to your friends, say pursue, talk the way you speak? And she gave me all her classic advice. As she told you, write about what you know was always her key. Who have been the influences on you? I mean, who do you think shaped who you are as a writer? Gosh, I don't know. I think it's hard to pick one person. Definitely Maeve was helpful at the beginning. And I'm influenced by so many things. So, for example, I do think that as a child, being brought to movies by my parents from a very young age. And I specifically remember Bambi. This is going to sound so corny, but I remember that movie just being absolutely and utterly floored by the concept that you could lose your mother. You know, that just was so powerful. When you're a child, you don't have that concept in your head that you could ever lose your mother. And, you know, Obviously, the first Butterfly novel is about a teenager who's lost her mother. I mean, is that something that is reflected in your own life or or why have you tapped into that? I've actually often wondered that myself because it is definitely a big theme. And when I'm writing about something like that, I feel that I'm writing from experience. And yet I don't have that experience. I mean... I'm not a psychologist. I know that when I was born for eight weeks, I didn't have my mum because she was very ill for that period of time. But that just seems to be a bit of a stretch to go back that far to when she wasn't there. But I doubt that's it. My mum has always been really supportive, you know, been a really warm person and a great mum. And she's still with us. So I don't I don't really know where that comes from. But it does feel to me like a, a really truthful story when I'm writing it. For you now, you still have both your parents, don't you, Denise? Yes, I do. Um, They're not very well. They both have Parkinson's disease, but they are living as best they can. Um, They have someone who minds them at home. So so that's great. And, you know, it's a case of, of trying to do as much as you can with the limitations that your body unfortunately restricts you. I mean, it's 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 a very frustrating illness. It's unusual they both have Parkinson's. It's really unusual. My dad is has traditional Parkinson's. My mum developed Parkinson's as a result of a drug she was taking for Meniere's disease, which was prescribed in too high a dose and gave it to her. So, I mean, it's it's awful to see them with it, but at least they're at the same pace. They understand where the other is and for Parkinson's disease, it's very it's very hard because you have you've really slowed down. So if the other person is slowed down with you, maybe that's one positive. Is it because you are a nurse? You can't really say you, you've been a nurse. You're always a nurse with, with that level of knowledge you carry in your head. Do you, in a sense, become the one who's primary in that conversation with your parents because you have medical training? Well, yes, I'm always seen kind of anyway as the kind of the, what is it, the steady pair of hands, the, the reliable one. You know, we all have the our go-to. roles. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. And yeah, the medical thing definitely, absolutely is really practical and helpful. And last year at the same time that this was happening with my family, Joe's mum passed away and his father 
developed Alzheimer's. So it all came together. And it was very important to have somebody there, especially in terms of the hospitals and that, to make sure the care was actually there. I'm afraid it's it's a sad state of affairs, but you have to sit on people yeah. nowadays. And it's it's tragic that it has come to that. But yeah, it's 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 good to have someone medical in the family when something like that happens because they absolutely know what should be happening, what shouldn't be happening. Or the and questions to, to ask. Yeah, absolutely. Questions and and I just even know from when I was a nurse, if they find out there's someone in the family, the care goes up. It does. Which is funny in a dark humour way, because I used to always say to my mother, joking, we don't have a nurse in my family, but my first cousin's a nurse. So I used to say to Rose, you know, every mother should have at least one nurse <laughs> and one hairdresser. My elder sister is a hairdresser. Definitely useful to have somebody who can mediate, but also make sure your hair looks good. I can cut hair. I cut my husband's hair. I used to cut my son's hair until he got tremendously vain. A whole other career. Yeah, it's nice. I like it. Denise, you mentioned marriage and I know you're married to Joe and you've two children. So in many ways, your story of your two children is at the core of your current reinvention as Amy Alexander. And it's a bit like a character at a Lara Croft or something. You sound like somebody who's going to bound in as a super heroine. But how did Denise become Amy Alexander? Well, it's interesting how it happened because it happened in so many levels. I had a friend who was an artist who'd been telling me long ago that I should do my own publishing because of my background. I have the public relations and marketing experience. And she was a person who is a very celebrated artist in Ireland. And she decided to take out the middleman, to not use galleries. And it it made her so much happier just doing things for herself. So it's just taken me a long time to actually for the moment to arrive. But anyway, the moment has arisen and I wanted it to be a completely fresh start. So I wanted a new name. But I also wanted it to be a very personal journey, too. And so the idea came to me that I could make it absolutely personal by calling myself Amy Alexander, who were my two children. The little boy on the front of the first cover, Pause to Rewind, is Alex when he was a little boy. And I love that photograph so much. Um, And even Pause to Rewind means something because when Amy was little, she would say, she would mix up rewind and remind. So she would say, rewind me instead of remind me. So all the things in that book are so personal. And the adventure is a hugely personal experience. And it's just been fantastic. So Denise, you kind of robbed your children's names to become this Amy Alexander person. What do they think? What does Amy and Alexander think? They absolutely love it. Alex is 16 and he's been in Spain for the last four months doing an exchange. And I mean, they're both your typical teenager. They're, you know, they they don't get excited about my books. They never really have. They've always been born into this thing happening. And when I told Alex that I was doing the book and, and Amy, both of them with their names, they were really thrilled. But when I showed him the cover, I WhatsApped him the link over to Spain. This is the cover with the Alex, cover with as, Alex as on the front. child on yeah. it. Yeah, he goes, Mum, this is the first time I've been excited by any of your books. So it's it's brilliant because everybody is, I'm, I'm genuinely serious when I say everyone is really excited about 
Amy Alexander. And as you say, you love the name. So many people have said that to me. I love that name, Amy Alexander, quite apart from the fact that they're my kids. They love the name. And Joe, what does he think? Joe has always been like really supportive. Like I I think back to when we were deciding that I would do this absolutely crazy mad thing and give up this really profitable business just throw it away and start writing books without any publisher without any agent and he was like oh no no you need to do this if this is what you want to do so he's always been like that and it's been amazing and it's never changed he's always been like that and the Amy Alexander thing is it's just been so exciting for all of us Um, does he read your work no, <laughs> not at all. He never. Ever? Re- no, never. He just he feels that writing isn't his area of expertise. So what you're effectively doing is not just renaming yourself, but reinventing yourself, rereading, rewriting some of your early work, changing the name. And in many ways now, as you say, taking out the middleman, moving into e-publishing and becoming your own publisher agent effectively. Now, you mentioned Pause to Rewind. Give us a little sense about what the story is about and and maybe share a little bit from it. Okay, well, the story is about a single mum, Jenny, and her little boy, Charlie, who is just starting school, develops leukaemia. And it is about how that forces her to face things in her life that she has been avoiding in her past, really. Somebody summed it up beautifully for me. Um, They said that she has to face her past for her child's future. And so it's about it's about Jenny growing up. It's also a romance, believe it or not. And it's very much a family drama as well, because the people that she has to face are her mum, who she's has no relationship with at all anymore. And also she has to face the, the dilemma of who the father of Charlie is. It could have been one of two men. And so she has to approach them for a sample to see if they would be a suitable donor for him. And it's a very difficult thing to do and she really struggles with it. So it's a journey very much for Jenny, even though Charlie is the person who, and he's a huge character. And when I actually finished the book, I felt a huge loss in my life for Charlie, that he was no longer with me, which is bizarre. And it was the first time I'd ever felt that. Let's have a little listen to the story and Jenny, in a sense, discovering that Charlie has leukaemia and what happens next. Yeah, so this is just just before the diagnosis and they're in hospital and she's fearing the worst. And it's night time. From somewhere near the nurse's station comes the inconsolable, unformed cry of a very young baby. Surely you can't get cancer that early. Why else would it be here? And what are they doing to make it cry like that? I turn and walk in the opposite direction, try to blank it from my mind. What I need to do is remember everything I've ever heard, read or written about leukaemia. I hear the sound of vomiting and hurry back to the room. It's not Charlie. It's not anyone in this room. My boy is in a happy, restful sleep. I move a strand of hair from his face. My little angel. I wander over to the window, pull back the blind with a finger and peep out at the clear night sky. The full moon looks like a poppadom. The stars wink at it. Come on, don't hang there all night, taking everything too seriously. Come play. 
I try to think of anything else it could possibly be. Something with the same symptoms. Something that needs a quick course of antibiotics and a little rest. I look over at my baby, then back to the sky. I ask whoever's up there why he should have to go through this, if he does. But in my heart I know he does. Why else would I be standing here in a cancer ward at three in the morning looking up at the stars? And Denise, did you know somebody who went through that experience of having a child who had leukaemia? No, I didn't. But in a sort of situation of life imitating art, I was a few weeks into writing the book and my own daughter got very ill. Amy, she was about eight and we had a horrific two weeks in hospital. They couldn't find out what was wrong with her and she was in tremendous pain and also um, really, really high temperatures. And they were doing every scan under the sun and talking about horrible diagnoses and possible diagnoses. And me, as having been a nurse, <laughs> I used to do things like I would I have to wheel her down somewhere for an X-ray. And I remember once wheeling her back and going into the chapel and sitting down and opening her folder, her medical folder, and going through everything that they thought it was. And it was absolutely terrifying. But we were really lucky. It turned out that she had somehow developed an abscess between her spine and her lung. And so it was very small, so they didn't pick it up. In fact, it was a basic x-ray in the end that spotted it. And we were very lucky as well because abscess don't tend to respond to antibiotics and it was a very dangerous place to go in surgically. So, but it it did, it it responded and she got better, thank God. But I will never forget that experience, never. Is it difficult to be an e-publisher, to take your own work and get it out there to the world? Well, how it worked for me, and again, I'm just going into this blind, really, and trying to learn as much as I can from other people who've done it. But I discovered that with Amazon, you have the potential to offer your book for free every three months for five days. And so I set up that promotion. Now, there's also an awful lot of other people doing that, too. So there are sites that you can actually advertise with and they have hundreds of thousands of followers who are looking out for, you know, free or reduced books that they might be interested in. And so I put my book, I paid 230 bucks, I'm joking, dollars, to go with this site called BookBub. Only a few people get accepted by BookBub. And when I did that, in 24 hours, 40,000 people had downloaded the book. And that was incredible because it started a momentum because people then read it and liked it and then reviewed it on Amazon. And obviously people must be recommending it to each other because it's doing really nicely now. So it's very exciting. So Denise, and this is the critical question, I suppose, for all of us. Are you actually making money? Yes, I am. And what's absolutely wonderful for me to see is the transparency. I can go into Amazon at any time and see where my book is selling, you know, in whatever country. I can see the response to a promotion. I, I have so much ability to be a very flexible publisher. Because it's great, you're blogging as well. Uh, you have an Amy Alexander blog and you're talking about this story of the reinvention of you and the journey into digital publishing. Share that as well, because you're, you're making a decision to literally put 
the steps that you're taking out there and to talk to your audience about the journey and what you're learning. And it's pain. It's, you know, there's things that you're finding really difficult around it as well. You know, that's another thing that's really interesting as well. I tried to blog as Denise Deegan and I just couldn't do it because I thought, well, no one cares. Like no one cares what I'm having for breakfast or what I'm, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I had nothing to say. But now this is different. I have so much to say because... As I said, it's it's a journey and it's an adventure. And I know there's lots of people out there in the same situation or even readers who are interested in how a book comes about. And so I do have lots to say. And it's not, oh, how fabulous I am. It's It can be how I was banging my head against a wall, trying to do something that most people would find very easy. But because my technology side is just so <laughs> appallingly bad. Where you are now, in a sense, with this dual identity as a writer, Denise and Amy, what happens next? I mean, are you writing in both names? Will you continue writing as Denise? I think it's really interesting. What's going to happen is I have the four adult books that I'm I'm working really hard on to get out and get them as best as they can be. And I have another adult historical novel that I think I might add on to that to have at the fifth because it's, it's one I'm really excited about. And Denise, this historical novel that you're talking about, that, that's a bit of a change because at the moment your adult novels, the Amy Alexanders that you're, rele- you're releasing are contemporary. Can you tell us about it? It was, it's, it was an idea that came to me, I suppose 1916 was in my mind because we're approaching it and there's obviously going to be a big centenary and it was Obviously, a huge turning point in Irish history, and I absolutely love history. And it's probably another reason I'm writing stories, because so many of the good ones are in history. And I just thought of a love story based around 1916, but starting in 1913 and actually going into the First World War. And probably one of the nicest experiences I had in writing this was I wrote some young boys who find themselves in Gallipoli in World War One. And it was a very emotional experience because some of the characters that I have introduced in Gallipoli are based on photographs of soldiers. I I saw young Irish boys in a regiment called the Pals, which were a very special regiment that were drawn from athletes, rugby players at national, international level, football players. And they were very special, tight unit, very closely knit and had so much in common. And they all went out and most of them were actually wiped out. But there's a fantastic book that I found that was written only a few years later. Wonderful book. And at the back of it is photographs of all these boys and a few of the faces just really spoke to me. And so those characters to me, I just, you know, I felt really emotionally connected to them. So, gosh, this is weird. (laughs) So it's been, you know, a really great experience, too. So I just follow the stories, you know, that come and I try and be honest, you know, and truthful. And Denise, you're getting upset even talking about those boys in in Gallipoli. For many of us, including myself, we all have family stories and connections into both 1916 and World War I. For you, are there resonance within your own family? Is that coming from an echo? No, there's, there's nobody I could find. I really wanted to find someone. I can't. Yeah, there's no one. And so it's interesting that you so much identify emotionally with those characters that you found through that picture, that in a sense, in listening to you, you do 
channel your characters, you lift them emotionally during the period that you're writing with them. Oh, absolutely. Like when I write the books, they're written in the first person. So the historical one is actually written from two points of view, the boy and the girl. And one is a rebel and she's very passionate and fiery. And and the other then is this boy who signs up to the British army to in fact try to to save her, really, to try and avoid her fighting. So they're very real for me. And now, at this point, if you're in the sense of of completing that historical novel, it's involved a lot of research. Has that been quite different to where you've been with other books, which often they've come from a very internal journey? You've been really reading studying, talking to people for this book? Oh my God, (laughs) it has been so difficult to do the research because you read one story somewhere and then you think, okay, that's grand, that's the history. And then you read a completely conflicting view somewhere else or you speak to someone or you read a witness statement. I mean, that's the fascinating thing. There are witness statements from people who were involved in the 1916 Rising. Fascinating. But I guess it's like if you can imagine a car accident happening out in the street, you'll have seven people with seven different stories. And you can imagine over a period of time in history, it gets even more muddy. And so I had to take a step back and I had to say, okay, this is actually really about characters. And that's what people connect to. And the history is fascinating, but don't get bogged down by it. You know, use it to give your characters challenges and, you know, dilemmas, which is what creates a story in the first place. But keep it about the characters and the emotion. Because I think if I look at all my books, all the different types of books that I have written, the thing that ties them all together is emotion. Like they're written with emotion and the people who read them experience a lot of emotion. So I think I've just discovered that as I was talking there. And Denise, within this journey from... You're very casual stepping into writing to now being engrossed in historical research for, in a sense, a a much more structured novel. You've obviously changed as a writer. Looking back now across this period, what would you say to that Denise Young writer who was starting out, not knowing about editing or many of the processes around it, not perhaps contaminated by an English degree and having had all these other theories about writing in her head but but what would you say to Denise as she began if you could? I'd say absolutely nothing because it might have stopped her you know I think what I had was complete naivety and ignorance and that gave me huge freedom and I just got going and I didn't worry and the thing that was really good about the first novel and probably a lot of them is the voice the voice is very strong of the person telling the story and If I tried to complicate things and say, oh, well, you know, you know, don't forget to edit or blah, blah, blah. It just might have stopped that, Denise. And Denise, what motivates you? What drives you as a writer? I can't imagine myself doing anything else except maybe screenwriting because I absolutely love movies. But it's my absolute passion. It's like for me, it's like eating. It's like breathing. It's just... It's absolutely who I am and I would hate if I had to, you know, give it up to do something else for financial reasons or something like that. This is what I want to do and this is why I really want to make the self-publishing work 
But how are you going to play this? In a sense, your books going into Amazon and into the Kindle readers and that, are you still going to print? Well, they're going to be printed and become paperbacks. But for me, the excitement for, for Amy Alexander and her journey, the excitement is seeing her books go all over the world. And I can do that really through Amazon and other outlets that I still haven't explored yet. I've, I've just started on Amazon, but I can make paperbacks as well as as ebooks. The other adventure of the books physically being in the shops is a different adventure. If a publisher wants to come after me, and this happens in self-publishing all the time now, that somebody self-publishes does incredibly well. And then the publishers come after them and want to publish the book. So who knows? Well, I suppose the classic one is Shades of Grey. Um, in a sense, a very different genre to where you are now, but she self-published and was then chased into traditional publishing. So there, there is this phenomenon over the last few years where e-publishing is leading and directing into oh, what we're known as traditional. Absolutely. The, the agents and the publishers are actually looking at, at the bestsellers lists and they're picking the top authors that are self-published and agents are doing it. They're offering them big book deals and publishers are going with them because they have the audience and they have the readership. And for the future now, as Amy Alexander goes global on Amazon, what's your dreams and hopes for 2015 and for the coming period? Well, what I love about the whole journey is the excitement. And I love the fact that I don't really know where I'm going, and but I'm really optimistic about it. I, what I love is the response that I'm getting from people, the excitement that it's generating with those I love, as well as obviously myself. The way that you can be creative in a, a broader sense, you can be creative in the book cover, in the marketing. And I am a marketing person. That's, you know, my background. And I love that. And I just it's just fantastic to be able to use everything that I have and and not be dependent on another person or other people and the freedom that comes with that. So it's to live like that and to continue to live like that. And also, I mean, I would just be over the moon, like if you're talking about dreams, if the butterfly novels were made into a television series or into movies, oh my God, I'd be so excited. Or if if they, you know, were published in the States, I'd be delighted, you know. But if that doesn't go that way, well, then I'll self-publish them and I'll put them out myself to the world market. It's, it's really just to keep the adventure alive and keep enjoying it. You live South Dublin. Yeah. And obviously you do find yourself walking on Kalini Hill. And you are a rather striking woman with long, dark hair. And I do know that you've had at least one occasion, and you've probably had more, where you get confused with another probably very famous resident around that neck of the woods. I'm smiling as you say this because it happens a lot. And the really weird thing, it's Ali Hewson, Bono's wife, and... Um, yeah, it happens a lot and it happens actually with people who know her, which is even weirder. <laughs> I know. I was walking on Kalini Beach with the dog one day, right? This was the most weird experience. And I was dreaming, as you do. And I had sunglasses on and this woman started coming up to me and she was going, Ali, Ali. And I knew straight away, obviously, who she was talking about because it happens to me. And I, I didn't want to go and go, oh, no, I'm not Ali. So I, I kind of 
I was just waiting for her to realise that I'm not Ali. And instead, she just reaches for my sunglasses, rips them off my face. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Meanwhile, her dog is going to the loo on the beach and she doesn't even notice. And I'm going, no, 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 I'm not Ali Houston. And she's kind of arguing with me as if, like, I am. And I'm going, no, no, I'm not Ali Houston. And I eventually got my glasses back and walked on. (laughs) But she was so convinced that she was trying to convince me. It was so strange. It's always an alternative career there as, uh-huh. as uh, an Ali Hewson. <laughs> look like, look like. <laughs> Denise Deegan, Amy Alexander and perhaps Ali Hewson look alike. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It's a pleasure.